everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, and this week I'm reviewing 2014's adaptation of the Skeleton Crew short story Grandma, titled Mercy. Mercy stars The Walking Dead's Chandler Riggs, Francis O'Connor, Joel Courtney, Mark Duplass, Duplass, and Dylan McDermott, and it's directed by Peter Cornwall. I'm going to get to the review in a second, uh, but first I want to I want to read some listener mail. Last week, or not last week, but uh, a few weeks ago, uh, I, I read an email from Craig. Craig writes again, um, and for those of you who didn't listen to that particular episode, I believe it was in the review of Stephen King's Cycle of the Werewolf, the Corey Haim vehicle pun totally intended, um, werewolf movie, and I started off reading some some listener mail, and I got this this one e- uh, email from Craig, and the two of us uh, wrote back and forth about the creative process, and he, he has uh, just a little addendum that, that he would like to add. So the what about the majority of Twain, SK readers, lost viewers, etc., who simply enjoy the book-slash-TV show for its entertainment value and could care less about analyzing, critiquing the guts of the matter? That is a huge and such an important question. Now, I, I listened to, I guess my answer to this, I just want to share a, a very brief anecdote. I'm going to pull from the, the, the guys of the Slash Filmcast and, and typically what, what they say about this, this particular matter because the, the, the host, Dave Chen, who's a renaissance man, for those of you who don't know. who don't, if you, Guys, if you're not listening to the Slash, Film class, slash Filmcast, I, I, I strongly encourage you to do so, especially if you miss, you know, Siskel and Ebert and Ebert and Roper. The guys on, on the Slash Filmcast, uh, David Chen, Devendra Hardwar, and Jeff Kanata, they are so good at being able to discuss a movie, critique it, and and respectfully argue each other's points and disagree with one another. It, it's, it's, it's fun. They always do a really fun job. But at the same time, it's always very, very professionally done. They have great insights. And uh, Dave... Uh, is not only is a, is he a podcast reviewer for Slash Filmcast, he also did The One Who Knocks, um, which was a Breaking Bad. He does um, A Cast of Kings with Joanna Robinson, who is also fantastic. Uh, and A Cast of Kings is the Game of Thrones podcast that they do. And Dave also, he's a movie producer. He just made a film this past year uh, starring Stephen Tobolowsky. Uh, who is probably most famously known from Groundhog Day. And he's also an incredible cellist. So very, very inspired by the the, the workmanship in David Chen. But Dave, one of the things that, that he has mentioned before, because he always, he always gets slammed for always finding fault with things, he said that for some people, the enjoyment process does come from from reviewing and analyzing and critiquing that this is enjoyment for some people. And for me and for reviewers and analysts uh, and and critics, part of the enjoyment does come from understanding what the standard is 
that the artist has set for him or herself and holding that artist to that standard and measuring whether a particular piece holds up to that standard and whether the medium be a poem, a short story, a novel, a painting, a piece of music, an album, a television show as a whole or episode by episode or movie, you know, does that particular artist work within the tools given to them within that particular medium and do they use the tools effectively to create the art? I I think that for me, I, I can't help but view things that way. And I totally get it if people just want to enjoy it for what it is. Because last, the not, I keep saying last week, but in the, the, the last email that Craig had sent that I read, you know, he described challenging his college professor over a Mark Twain analysis and said, what if he just wanted to make money off of it? And I think that that's, that's a very, very valid point. I'm currently rereading it at the time of this publication, and there is a quote, there's a there's a scene in it that sticks with me all the time when I think about what I'm doing here, and in and I haven't gotten there yet in the reread, but like I said, it's it's always stuck with me, especially because I was an English major. Uh, but there's a scene, a flashback in which Bill Denbro, the I guess you'd call him the main character of the book, is in college. And he says to his professor, why can't a story just be a story? You know, why, why do we have to find meaning where otherwise there, there, there might not be any meaning? So it's a very, very valid, very, very valid point. And that's from Stephen King. So la- the last time I, I read one of Craig's emails, he said, you know, what if, if I was fortunate enough to have lunch with Stephen King, you know, how would he feel about the, the analysis? And I, I personally think that Stephen King probably would tell me to find something better to do with my time, which is totally understandable uh, because there are people out there that just want a story to be a story. And there are people that just want to sit and, and they want to watch television and it's fine or a movie and that's fine. But I'm, I'm personally not, not someone that, that can do that now uh, because I see the, I see the way I guess the sausage is made. I, I see the way things are constructed and I like talking about how things are constructed and, and whether or not they're constructed as well as they could be. So for me, my enjoyment personally comes about from the reviewing process. But for those that, that don't, um, you know, then you're just able to sit back and let everything wash over you, which is, from a philosophical standpoint, that sounds amazing. But anyway, uh, Craig continues to write, I really did like your bit about how SK gets the reader to buy into his characters so readily. Like you said, by page five of Revival, you know, you care about them. You know, uh, his wife, Sue, who was who also wrote in in a wonderful email, email. Sue and I have discussed, reread, and dissected how he does this, and I think that you are right by suggesting syntax and word choices. Um, so, Craig, again, thank you for writing in. Um, this is great because your, your emails are really making me think, and I really appreciate that, and I really like being able to share them with the, the rest of the world. Okay, uh, so that, that that's all that I have for listener mail right now. Um, keep them keep them coming, everyone, because I, I really I really do enjoy um, putting them out there. 
All right, so now I want to get into the 2014 movie Mercy based on the Skeleton Crew short story Grandma. Now, I, I, I remember hearing about it when it was coming out, and I was excited. You know, we got another Stephen King movie coming out because, you know, when I started this podcast, it was because I felt that there was... Uh, we had hit a point where Stephen King kind of had fallen out of favor in terms of pop culture conversation. So anytime a new movie comes out, I, I see it as the potential to reignite, you know, the flame that, that he once was and to put him back on the top of the pop culture conversation that I would say is currently held by George R. R. Martin. But I think that ultimately that George R. R. Martin is going to be challenged in the, the next few years uh, as the stand four-part series from Warner Brothers gets off the ground and New Line Cinema's two-part It, directed by True Detective's Corey Fukunaga, uh, starts, to, starts to gather some steam. So I, I think that between those two projects, which is six movies, King is going to come back in a big way. But regardless, when Mercy came out, I, I, I said, okay, you know, it's starring, you know... Uh, Chandler Riggs, who plays Coral from The Walking Dead, so that that's great. And Dylan McDermott is you know established, and and Joel Courtney, who was the star of Super Eight, and he was awesome in Super Eight, great child actor. And uh, you know Francis O'Connor, most famously known, I would say probably from Steven Spielberg and Stanley Kubrick's AI. Uh, so I mean, we had we had some characters, we had some some you know some talent there, and. Then all of a sudden I didn't really hear anything about the, the movie. Then I knew it was just on video on demand. And then I did some research and, and the studio just dumped it onto video on demand. There was no publicity around it. There was no promotion whatsoever. And then then I saw it in Best Buy when I was just walking through Best Buy. And I picked it up and I'm looking on the front. And the front, I, I believe, says from the, the, the director of uh, A Haunting in Connecticut, from the producers of Paranormal Activity, starring The Walking Dead's Chandler Riggs, but doesn't say anything about Stephen King. It doesn't say Stephen King's mercy. It doesn't say based on the short story from Stephen King. And on the back, I'm looking. I'm looking at the synopsis on the back, and it says, you know, something like 12-year-old George goes to live with his, his grandmother and blah, 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 and it goes on. And again, it doesn't say based on the short story Grandma from Stephen King, mercy is a story about 12 year old George. It doesn't say that. In fact, the only time it says Stephen King on the, the Blu-ray at all is in the bottom, the very, very bottom, you know, with the credits directed by starring so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. And then in the middle of it, very small, it says based on the short story Grandma by Stephen King. Well, that hurt my heart. That this, that whoever put this together, the the executives and the marketing team, they they looked at it and they analyzed it and they said that it would this would draw in more viewers if they promoted a haunting in Connecticut, The Walking Dead, and Paranormal Activity, and not Stephen King. And to not even mention Stephen King at all, like I said, that 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 stuck with me. That I really I, I don't understand. That to me kind of blows my mind. I mean, a haunting in Connecticut is a 
forgettable film. Nothing memorable about it. And that's advertised, but not the master of the genre in which this movie was released. So that, to me, that spoke volumes about what I said. Stephen King not being in the cultural conversation the way that he once was. Ultimately, I think that it's good for Stephen King that his name is not really found on this, as this is an awful awful movie. We begin with an establishing shot of Rolling Hills, which would easily be mistaken for Ireland, which I think is pretty cool, before the title reveals that we are, in fact, in West Virginia, 1967. An old farmhouse stands on top of a hill besides a gnarled and creepy tree. In, so we're, we're doing good so far. Inside is a uh, not well-looking man, uh, looking uh, like he's about to do his best Jack Nicholson impersonation on his wife, who's holding a newborn, before flipping the axe and smashing his head, um, killing himself. And then creepy music starts to play over time-lapse shots of trees and hills and fields, and it feels less like the U.S. and more like Europe, which to me, it works makes everything feel older with more history. And at this point, I'm into it. And I'm giving this movie the benefit of the doubt. And then the camera takes inside a house where all of a sudden we're subjected to horrific paintings of monsters and demons. And ugh, I, immediately I start checking out. Okay, until now, the setting has been unsettling enough. Now this just starts tipping it too far. It's too much. It's too in your face. It's trying to tell you, this is scary. And I'm responding, no, it's not, unless you provide the, the proper context for something. It's not scary. A scary painting is not scary unless there's a reason for it to be scary. And if it's just a gruesome-looking image, all it is is just paint on a canvas. You need to show me why it's scary. It just can't be. You just can't throw something out there and say, this is scary. So the... Um, we, we wind up getting a voiceover soon after from Coral himself, uh, teenage girl dreamboat Chandler Riggs. He states that he's always been best friends with his grandma, which could not be any more different from the depiction of George from the short story. In the short story, as you'll probably remember, George was terrified of grandma. We then fade into a scene uh, with Coral getting beat up by a group of boys while very serious and Capital V, capital S, very serious music plays. And Grandma gives him a speech about being outsiders and being strong. While walking through rich fields, we encounter Grandma's grandma's grave, complete with a curse. And hey, there's a rattlesnake there for, for no good reason. And then Grandma gives Coral a violin to calm down the snake. And I don't have no idea what's going on in this movie already, and I don't care that I don't know what's going on. The only thing that I'm hoping at this point is that the rigidity of the dialogue just starts to ease up because I want a little bit more fluidity and organic quality between the, the, the actors and, and the lines that they have to speak. Because, you know, she says things like, if you can stand up to a beast, you can stand up to a bully. And it's so, uh, so just rigid and stiff. You know, so Grandma says that. Seconds later, later Coral knocks the kid out. And hey, that's it. That's all that we see of the bully story. At dinner, Grandma has a seizure and falls. Uh, Grandma, codenamed Mercy, by the way, uh, starts attacking her grandchildren but stops at Coral because love. Grandma tells George that he's coming and he needs to get out of there. 
cuts to one year later, and I'm going to stop right here. So far, I'm impressed with the location scout who picked the setting for the movie. Aside from that, I'm pretty worried about what I'm going to be sitting through. In the nine minutes and three seconds I've been watching, we've had an establishing flashback sequence with young grandma, a flashback for Georgie one year before, in which we get a very forced scene of dialogue between the two characters that fails to demonstrate their relationship with one another to the point that it required narration to do the job for us. We have two bully scenes completely disjointed from one another, and Chandler Riggs plays pre- and post-bullying exactly the same, so the bully plot thus far is pointless and static, and the bullying plot is never revisited again, so it's pointless. However, things take an interesting turn once revealed that George has an imaginary friend. It's a nice twist that I honestly didn't see coming. And until the point where George's teacher asks who he's talking to, I was about to write a comment about the scene being groan-worthy. Dylan McDermott shows up with an accent, kind of, sometimes. <laughs> he flirts with Francis O'Connor and very clumsily they, they drop the information that he has a wife, which we know is going to come into play later in the movie. While alone in the house, Coral hears creepy sounds and lifts a rug. We then meet Uncle Len, who's presented as the anti-Dylan McDermott, trying too hard, unfriendly. Then an actor by the name of Joe Agender shows up as an orderly to provide the necessary tidbits of the importance of holding a Bible while around Codename Mercy and the shots of the family, or the shots the family has to give her. Agender, by the way, the reason I bring him up, he looks so much like Giovanni Ribisi, I found the resemblance to be the scariest thing in this movie so far. Oh no, scary arms jump out from under the bed. I won't be able to sleep tonight. And then George gets scary mail. Thank goodness, with the U.S. Post Office on the ropes, I applaud director Peter Cornwell for giving us such a harrowing scene that simultaneously supports our country's mail system. Haster's got her, Georgie, the note informs us with giant red scratchy lettering. The apostrophe's there, so whoever wrote it, even though they can't make the letter look presentable, they know enough about possessive nouns, so that's a plus. And the author of this masterpiece gives George the advice to not just run, but run, 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 in case he was only skimming the note and missed the ending. Hey, and just in case the thick lead rhetoric and the content of the note didn't do the job enough, the music kicks in to remind us that this is supposed to be scary. The music's unnecessary, to say the least. With the fact that the only thing I receive in the mail are bills, checking the mail is easily the scariest part of my day. I don't need scary music to tell me it's scary. Trust me, if you saw my bank account, you'd be scared too. Oh, and this nine-foot red scratchy devilish lettering is clearly Aunt Jenny's handwriting, according to Mama Coral, forensic handwriting expert. Now let's take a look here at Joel Courtney. Now this kid was poised to be a star after his breakout role in J.J. Abrams' Super 8. And I'm disappointed that he's relegated to playing second fiddle to Chandler Riggs. I believe that he deserves better and I'm hoping that he has a future. Though he doesn't demonstrate the same skills in this movie as he did in that one. I I think that I, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm holding my, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Because if you haven't seen Super 8, it, it, it hinges on his performance and and Ellie Fanning yeah it's Ellie Fanning uh those two child actors do such an incredible job working off each other the chemistry with each other Joel Courtney's eyes are so emotive um so I it, it was very disheartening to see him in in this particular movie now in this movie he's a super taster and loves to cook 
fortunately, he's cooking for West Virginians, who apparently have never heard of sushi, because they hilariously point out that it's undercooked and should be put on a grill. How will this city boy ever make his dream of being a chef come true in this backwoods West Virginia town? Find out in the Stephen King classic Mercy, now on Netflix streaming. And Dylan McDermott and his wife start talking about the death wolf, which walks between two worlds and eats your soul. So now we know where the pictures and the opening credits came from, and I still don't care. Coral goes into the cellar, where the West Virginians have forgotten to put in a new light bulb because they like their basements like they like their familiarity with sushi in the dark. Then Mark Duplass goes full weird uncle, 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 uncle Coral, grabbing him out of the dark. Now, Come on, I know that we're not supposed to like this guy, but this movie is supposed to take place in some sort of recognizable reality, and family members don't just jump out of dark basements no matter how douchey they're supposed to be. What was he even doing in there in the first place? Was he just waiting for the right moment when his sister would ask his nephew to go into an unlit basement so he could show the kid the crumpled up pastor note? It's stuff like that. It's that lazy storytelling that drives me insane. The, they know that they're going to get a jump scare out of there, but if you think about it for a second, it's not scary at all. Duplass takes Coral for a walk, and he tells the truth about Codename Mercy. Duplass, by the way, the guy does a lot for what he's given. He has a very naturalistic presence on screen, and even though he's supposed to be, play a creep, uh, there's such a likability to him. You know, even when he's forced to grab Coral and yell about the things that Codename Mercy can do and did to him as a child... You know, he still comes across as likable. Uh-oh. He's got a wood chipper. I'm going to be so surprised when that comes into play later on in the movie. Well, Duplass's warning go as unheeded as Aunt Jenny's note. Not only is Coral not run, run, running, he's going around just talking about Haster, Haster, Haster. So nothing bad is going to come from the fact that Grandma starts babbling in another language. And then Super Taster tells him to leave it alone, and I can't wait for Coral to do the exact opposite. And he doesn't disappoint, emptying out Codename Mercy's drugs. And then, by the way, does anyone not notice that she has violently stabbed her thigh a billion times and it's just never addressed it's a it's supposed to be this this brutal horrific scene that's completely ripping off the exorcist by the way where she's just stabbing her thigh over and over again with this hypodermic needle and there's blood everywhere and and that's it never touched upon you'd think that francis o'connor would say something about it maybe they would address it somehow but no it's completely it's only there for that it's just like anything else in this movie it's just there for a moment, supposed to be scary, but it, it never gels into anything of substance. <sighs> so Coral then gets to go visit the priest so he can do the opposite of whatever the priest is going to tell him to do. But at least he's being proactively oppositional. With the priest, we get some codename Mercy backstory because Mercy wanted children and couldn't have them. She turned to devil worship. You know, then Uncle Len dies, and I don't care, and Coral starts talking to the invisible girl who is now creepifying. You know, her you know, face is pale, her eyes are red-rimmed, she's sitting in shadow. And then uh, Joel, Courtney, and, and Coral find a, a witchy book, uh, the, the Not-Renomicon. And then they head to Dylan McDermott's house to talk to the devil wolf woman because I, I, I just, I don't care. Something about a book that needs tears on the page to see the lettering or something. And uh-oh, the wood chipper's back. Nothing bad's going to happen here. And then Joel takes some shrapnel to the gut. 
and Coral tells Mom that he's scared and doesn't want to be left alone. Well, you probably shouldn't have unearthed unholy books, dumped your evil grandmother's medicine down the sink, listened to Aunt Jenny's message at some point. With some time on his hands, he Googles Haster, which causes Haster to arrive only after the devil sends them a lovely potted plant. You know, he tends to get a bad rap, but that was a very thoughtful gift. Grandma dies or something, and Visigirl tells Coral to break down the door with the axe in the cellar, but uh-oh, someone's there with the axe. Who could it be? Coral then blunders into a magical circle. Uh, then outside, he sees the devil wolf or whatever it's called. You know, maybe he doesn't. Maybe we just do. I'm not really paying attention at this point. And then Coral visits Dylan McAccent, who in this scene realizes how ridiculous the accent sounded and decided that we'd be all better off if we dropped it all together. Or maybe he was just, you know, witchcraft into having an accent. Uh-oh, big twist. The only thing more unreliable than Jim's accent is Jim himself, who reveals that he sold his soul in order to be with Coral's mom. Jim, honestly, with your potential mother-in-law a demon witch, one future stepson, someone that does the exact opposite of what you tell him to do, and the other one a super taster, whatever the hell that is, that's what we call a deal-breaker. Coral escapes and blunders around the countryside, finds Aunt Jenny all dead in her car, emotes nothing, answers a phone, starts talking to Mom, who's now back at the house. Invisigirl tells him to keep on running. Coral mans up, returns to the house, blah blah. Code Mercy cries bloody tears onto the not Renomicon and throws up all over Coral's face. Then Ghost Grandpa's there with the axe, then he's not. Then the chains fly off Coral's hands because plot. Then Coral has the axe, and we're given flashback to Grandpa's suicide because we forgot what he did, apparently. Then the music builds, then the music dies, so he thinks he's not going to do it. Then the music starts again, so we think he totally is. And he totally throws the axe, but he does it over his shoulder into Codename Mercy's head. And oh hey, it's Haster. Goofy looking Haster. He uses the not Renomicon to have a lovely conversation with Coral about possessing him, then uses CGI blackness to start to consume him. Then Coral cries like a boss, dropping those tears onto the page and outwitting Haster at his own game. Then Invisigirl is there, and it's young Codename Mercy all along. Coral, borrowed, uh, Coral buries the not Renomicon, and his voiceover wraps it all up, saying something about facing challenges as a family, just like Grandma wanted. And then the only mercy I was granted from this movie was when it ended. So, book versus movie. Uh, this is where I compare the book versus the movie in a head-to-head -head battle to see who comes out on top. So we have our book in one corner, Grandma, versus our movie in the other, Mercy. So, let's look at Georgie. So it's almost not fair to compare the two because in the book, Georgie was just a kid but here he's Coral himself. He's troubled, he talks to imaginary friends, he's our narrator, he bullies his older brother. He's not a bad Georgie, but he's a George that exists in a flawed film. So I'm gonna go with story Georgie because, well, I'll get to the major reasons actually in a little bit, but story Georgie. Uh, then Mercy versus Grandma, okay? In the story, she's Grandma. Here, she's codenamed Mercy. In the story, Grandma is a terrifying presence, a giant mound of terror. She's a fairy tale witch, the kind that gobbles up lost children in dark woods. Because this movie is being made in 2014 and everyone needs everything needs to be nicely laid out just so the audience understands what's going on, Codename Mercy receives an origin story. Because nowadays a witch can't be a witch without being given a reason to be a witch. And to muddy things even more, she's never evil, she's just possessed. To paraphrase John Lovett's impersonation of Harvey Firestein, she just wanted to be loved. Is that so wrong? 
This decision is so annoying. It's like if Stanley Kubrick had given a backstory to the hag in room 237. We don't need everything to be explained. Why can't Codename Mercy just be a witch? And why does she have to be a nice grandmother who loves her grandchild and be possessed? Only possessed because she sold her soul because she kept having miscarriages? It's, I, I, it, it's like when they made the Texas Chainsaw Remake Massacre. Texas Chainsaw Massacre Remake, sorry, um, starring Jessica Biel, and they gave backstory to Leatherface. We don't need it. Sometimes evil can just be evil. Sometimes we can just have a monster be a monster and, and, and let that be the story. So the reason why I said in the Georgie part, you know, I would, I would get to it. In Georgie in the book is just a kid, and he's in the presence of a, of a legitimate monster. In the movie, Georgie is a kid in the presence of a grandmother who made a bad decision and sold her soul. I, and I, I'm trying to justify it, but it doesn't matter. I really don't care because the movie isn't good. And ultimately, the movie isn't even worth much of an analysis. It's just, it's not a good movie. The, the story is simple. It's a, it's a very simple story. It has a fairy tale like quality. Um, little kid gonna get gobbled up by an evil witch in a modern day setting. It's, it's that simple. This puts on all this stupid backstory with the, the grandmother, forced relationships, dumb backstory with the Dylan McDermott character. Um, it's just not, it's not good it's not good it's not a good movie uh so that's all that i have i don't have a definitive thing to really say about it other than it's, it's not it's not great and i guess i kind of see why the studio just dumped it onto video on demand without much of uh much uh publicity around it because it's just not really worth much publicity at all so everyone uh that's all that i've got that that's all that i'm gonna be doing with the the skeleton crew books um the Skeleton Crew stories because I reviewed Skeleton Crew, I've now reviewed The Mist, and Mercy. So what that means is that next week, why don't you come back and I, I sort of take a break from Stephen King um, and I, I look at his, um, his, his alter ego, the one, the only Mr. Richard Bachman, who will later go on to uh, play a role of sorts and inspire the, uh, the the evil character of George Stark in the Dark Half, which I can't wait to get to, and it's gonna take a it's gonna take a while. But that's you know every time I talk about Richard Bachman, I just I think of of George Stark. So I'll be examining um, at least one of the stories from the there's a there's a publication, the Richard Bachman books, and so you might have been wondering why I have not been reviewing the Richard Bachman stories as they've been published because they've been published at this point but there's a collection that winds up getting published and that's the Richard Bachman uh, it's called the Richard Bachman books and it gets published right after uh, Skeleton Crew so I will be reviewing that and just as I've done with the short stories and just like I did with different seasons I didn't review all of the stories contained within and I'm not going to review all of the stories contained within the Bachman books but I will definitely discuss at least one of them and I will be reviewing uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's The Running Man as well the following week so you know, we're going to be spending some time in the world of Richard Bachman, and after that, after that, that's when things get really good, but we'll have to stick around for that, and I'll get to that later. In the meantime, everyone, if you have not done so already, 
feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. You can like me on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Pinterest, on Tumblr. And if you haven't done so already, uh, please go out to iTunes and subscribe through iTunes and write a review uh, on iTunes to help bump the podcast up in the, 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 the listing of podcasts under iTunes. And I will see you all here next week to discuss Richard Bachman. Same King time, same King channel, Stephen Kingcast. You got me begging you for mercy.